Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks. Oh, there you are. Uh-huh. Terrific. I'm Bob Slidell. This is my associate, Bob Porter. Hi, Bob. Bob. Pretty much go ahead and grab a seat and join us for a minute or two. You see, what we're actually trying to do here is we're just, we're trying to get a feel for how people spend their day at work. So, if you would, would you walk us through a typical day for you? Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late after watching TV and toilet tweeting. I use the side door, that way General Kelly can't see me. Uh, and after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Space out? Yeah. I just stare at my desk, but it looks like I'm working. Sometimes I press my red button for a Diet Coke just to make sure it's still there. And I do that for probably another hour after lunch, too. And then I'd say, I don't know, in a given week, I probably do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. Would you be a good sport and indulge us and just tell us a little more? Oh, yeah, sure. Let me tell you something about this Twitter account fucked up mine. But it is not what you think. It is F-U-C... It looks like the train is wearing the hat, but we don't sell a hat that big. You have to see it for yourself. Believe me, it's just the best. It's a MAGA hat on an actual train. But it doesn't talk. The thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's just that I don't care. Don't... don't care? It's a problem of motivation, all right? Now, if I work my ass off and read the Constitution and the presidential daily briefings, those are the worst, terrible, terrible ratings, I don't see a golf course for days. So where's the motivation? And here's another thing, Bob. I have eight different personalities right now. I beg your pardon? Eight of me. Eight? Eight, Bob. So that means when I make a mistake, I have eight different me's coming to tell me whose fault it should be. That's my real motivation, is not to be hassled. That and the fear of losing my hair. But you know, Bob, it will only make someone work hard enough not to get fired. Believe me. Would you bear with me for just a second, please? Okay. What if, and believe me, this is so <laughs> hypothetical. But what if you were offered some kind of a stock option equity sharing program? Would that do anything for you? Uh, I don't know. I guess, uh, listen, uh, I'm shorting America creating subprime government. Uh, listen, I'm going to go golf, maybe put up a tweet about how unbelievable it would be to have another hurricane. Wasn't that great? It broke all the records. Anyway, I hope you had a good time, uh, like the people in Texas, especially the blacks. Blacks love Trump, but the lying media won't show you that. Okay, enjoy. It's been really nice talking to you guys. Absolutely. The pleasure's all on this side of the table, trust me.
This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 29 of Intercepted. And it's the most difficult job because it's on the island. It's on an island in the middle of the ocean. It's out in the ocean. You can't just drive your trucks there from other states. Well, Donald Trump has seemed to be totally unaware that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, unlike, say, the people of Texas and Florida. When Trump finally got around to acknowledging the horrible destruction that Hurricane Maria has wrought on the people of Puerto Rico, it was five days after the hurricane began its rampage. And when Trump did make a statement, it was, of course, on Twitter, and he sounded like a heinous Wall Street asshole chastising a poor person for losing their home. This is what Trump tweeted. Texas and Florida are doing great, but Puerto Rico, which was already suffering from broken infrastructure and massive debt, is in deep trouble. Trump couldn't be bothered to talk about the destruction of Puerto Rico or the well-being of its three and a half million people who are American citizens, for five whole days. That's because Trump was too busy obsessively using his presidential platform to attack other Americans, black athletes, and trying to get them fired because they've chosen to nonviolently protest the killing of black and brown people by police. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag? To say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! Now, Trump's attack, of course, was specifically aimed at Colin Kaepernick and other black football players. Kaepernick's mom responded to Trump by tweeting, I guess that makes me a proud bitch. Trump also had time to lie about NBA star Steph Curry of the NBA champions, the Golden State Warriors, Trump claimed that he was going to disinvite Steph Curry to the White House. You know, the the championship teams get invited to the White House. But the thing is, Steph Curry had already said he wasn't going to go to the White House. NBA superstar LeBron James then tweeted at Trump saying, you bum, Steph Curry already said he ain't going, so therefore ain't no invite. Going to White House was a great honor until you showed up. You bum. Me and my friends call each other that all the time. I'm not his friend, though. Don't ever, don't, I don't want to see that on the note. I, he's not my friend. He doesn't understand the power that he has for being the leader of this beautiful country. He doesn't understand how many kids, no matter the race, look up to the president of the United States for, for guidance, for leadership, for words of encouragement. He doesn't understand that. On Tuesday at a brief press conference outside the White House, Donald Trump defended his obsession with black NFL players. Well, I wasn't preoccupied with the NFL. I was uh, ashamed of what was taking place because, to me, that was a very important moment. I don't think you can disrespect our country, our flag, our national anthem. Uh, To me, the NFL situation is a very important situation. I've heard that before about was I preoccupied. Not at all. Not at all. I have plenty of time on my hands. All I do is work And to be honest with you, that's an important function of working. It's called respect for our country. Now, let's contrast Donald Trump's words and calling black athletes sons of bitches and how Trump speaks about race and free expression 
with the words and the sentiments of the coach of the San Antonio Spurs basketball team, Greg Popovich. You know, whether it's LGBT movement or, you know, uh, women's suffrage, uh, race, it doesn't matter. Uh, People have to be made to feel uncomfortable, and especially white people, because we're comfortable. We still have no clue of what being born white means. Donald Trump is using this moment as part of his culture war strategy. This isn't about respect for the flag. This is about race. This is about police killings of black people. This is about Trump wanting black people, particularly high-profile black people, to shut up and just entertain us. And this is about a White House that has made clear that it's fine with neo-Nazi marches and police killings, but wants protesting those very things outlawed sort of by proxy. Trump believes it should be mandatory for players in professional sports to stand for the flag or the national anthem. That's the shit of dictators and despots. Trump doesn't really believe in free speech. I honestly don't even think Trump is capable of correctly paraphrasing or characterizing what the First Amendment says. But let's be clear, this isn't really about free speech. This is about racism. This is about police killings. This is about a White House that has set a tone on race that is being openly celebrated by vile fascists and racists. We all need to be vigilant in not falling into the Trump trap of changing the narrative or making this about supporting the troops, because it's not. We are totally prepared for the second option, not a preferred option. But if we take that option, it will be devastating. I can tell you that devastating for North Korea. That's called the military option. If we have to take it, we will. He's acting very badly. He's saying things that should never, ever be said. And we're replying to those things, but it's a reply. It's not an original statement. It's a reply. Now, while Trump continues to attack black athletes, he is simultaneously pulling the United States and the world closer and closer to the terrifying possibility of a war involving nuclear weapons, a war involving North Korea. Trump has said he would consider totally destroying North Korea, a nation of 25 million people. Kim Jong-un's government says it has interpreted Trump's recent statements about North Korea as a declaration of war. North Korea has threatened to detonate a hydrogen bomb in response to the threats from Trump and to shoot down U.S. warplanes. Trump called Kim Jong-un rocket man and Kim called Trump a dotard. None of the North Korean reaction or counter threats are surprising, but it is hard not to view Trump as erratic, manic, and frankly dangerous, particularly when you consider the vast nuclear arsenal at Trump's fingertips. Now, during the election, a lot of people talked about, oh my God, what would happen if Trump had his you know, finger on the nuclear button? But what does it really mean? Well, all of this got me to looking into how easy would it actually be for Trump to use a nuclear weapon? And the answer is that it would be unthinkably easy, frighteningly easy. I'm joined now by physicist David Wright. He is co-director of the Union of Concerned Scientists Global Security Program. 
David, welcome to Intercepted. Nice to be here. What is the current system for initiating a nuclear strike within the United States government? How does it work? Who holds that authority? What oversight is there? Surprisingly, there's less oversight and uh, it's more streamlined than I think most people realize. Ultimate authority lies with the president of the United States. There are various uh, pieces of the procedure that are put in place to make sure that it's the person the president communicates to, knows that it's the president and that kind of thing. But if you if you strip out those sort of authentication uh, steps, it basically comes down to the president talking to advisors, which he or she may or, or may not do, deciding to launch, choosing an option either from a prepared list of options that the military has put together or developing a new one, and then calling what's called the war room or the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon, telling them what uh, option he's chosen, telling them when he wants the launch to take place, and that's basically it. The war room then prepares a short message that's sent out to bomber bases, missile bases, and submarines. And as long as they get the right authentication codes, their job is to launch the attack they've been told to launch. A decision is being made by the president and the Joint Chiefs in the war room at the Pentagon. And when they realize there was no possibility of recalling the wing, there will be only one course of action open. Total commitment. You know, you mentioned that he he may or may not talk to advisors, but when you boil it down to it, authority to use a nuclear weapon is solely held by the president of the United States. That's right. And in fact, there are no legal grounds for somebody else uh, stopping an order that was made illegally. And is the president required to communicate with anyone in Congress before launching a nuclear weapon? No. Is the president required to confer with the Secretary of Defense about this? No. I mean, it's assumed that uh, the president would, but there's no requirement. It sounds like what you're saying is that if the president of the United States, if Donald Trump decided that he wanted to use a nuclear weapon, that the only thing that could potentially stop it would be if individuals violated that order and said, I'm not going to do this. That's right. And they would be breaking the law in doing that. Yeah. Some people have argued that people would have to decide, do they think this was made by the proper processes and things like that? But if they had no reason to believe that there was something wrong with the process, uh, they would have no legal authority to do that. There's kind of this lore around what's called the nuclear football. And maybe you can explain what the nuclear football is and what its current iteration looks like. The uh, procedure I just described assumed that the president was able to communicate with the people that he needed to through secure channels. If he's in the White House or the Pentagon, he can do that. If he's out on the road, you need to find another way to do that. And so the football is basically a, a bag that weighs about 45 pounds. It has secure communications equipment in it. It has a black book of options. And it has a card, which is called the biscuit, uh, which has codes on it that allows the president to convince the person at the Pentagon he's talking to that he is, in fact, the president who's sending this message. So basically, the idea behind the football is to allow the president to order a launch, uh, no matter where he is. And for that reason, there has to be a military officer with him, essentially at all times, carrying this football. 
So as Trump travels around when he's at his golf courses or, you know, when he's at a political rally calling NFL players sons of bitches, the nuclear football is somewhere not far away? That's right. Not too long ago, he was at Mar-a-Lago at a dinner with some supporters and people were taking selfies with the, uh, the military officer who had the football. This really is always near him. Because of the hostile rhetoric emanating from Trump's Twitter feed, as well as from Pyongyang, you know, we, we now have North Korea saying that they view Trump's statements of late as a declaration of war, and they're asserting the right to shoot down U.S. war aircraft. You know, for the first time in, in the lives of young people, they have to face this notion that we live in a nuclear world in a much more real way than we did, say, you know, four or five years ago. What does it mean when nuclear weapons are on hair trigger alert? There are basically two ways that people talk about a nuclear war starting. Uh, one is if the president decided to launch a first strike, the first use of nuclear weapons. The other case is where there's warning of an attack coming in from another country, and the United States, through its early warning sensors, its radars, and its satellites, detects what they see as an incoming attack. And then the idea is to be able to get a retaliatory attack off the ground in a very short amount of time. This was really set up at a time when the U.S. and Russia were facing off back in the early days of the Cold War. There was a concern that what the United States relied on for deterrence at that point was its land-based missiles, and that its land-based missiles were potentially vulnerable to a Soviet attack because the Soviets knew where they were. And so the idea was that if you saw an attack coming in, you didn't want to sit and wait until those warheads landed because it could knock out your missiles. And therefore, they set up a very streamlined process of launching a retaliatory attack to get the missiles off the ground before the incoming missiles could land. That is still the situation that about 900 uh, U.S. warheads are on. The U.S. has currently about 1,800 nuclear warheads, so about half of them are on hair-trigger alert. And what that means is that uh, within the sort of half an hour that it would take for a a Russian launch, for example, to reach the United States, that uh, U.S. attack could be launched and sent back in its way. And so the problem with that is that you're relying on warning of an attack from sensors, from radars and satellites. And there have over the years been any number of times when those systems have uh, given false warning or there's been a problem in some cases with the people in the loop when people have thought that there was a launch and started to prepare for retaliation uh, when it turned out there wasn't. There was that film with Gene Hackman and uh, Denzel Washington, uh, Crimson Tide. And the plot of it basically is that the commander and the XO on this submarine are on hair trigger alert and there's uh, instability in Russia and communications get blocked and they don't know whether or not they're in a drill or they actually have been given the authority to use a nuclear weapon. Cobb, arrest this man and get him out of here! Under operating procedures governing the release of nuclear weapons, we cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Cobb, what are you waiting for? This is expressly why your command must be repeated. It requires my assent. I do not give it. And furthermore, you continue upon this course and insist upon this launch without confirming this message first. I will be forced back by the rules of precedent, Captain Commanding Officer of the USS Alabama. I honor you the place XO under arrest on the charge of Navy regulations. I say again, I order you to place the XO under arrest 
on the charge of mutiny. That's the kind of scenario you're talking about where maybe it is, maybe it isn't, and you have to make a decision on it very quickly. Well, that's right. I mean, one of the, the classic scenarios was the Pentagon uh, has a room where they monitor all their early warning systems. And back in 1979, all of a sudden it lit up basically saying that a full-scale Soviet attack, just like the ones they had practiced against, was underway. People checked and rechecked, and all the data that was coming into the computers you know, was perfect. At that point, they got a hold of uh, various people at the Pentagon, tried to make sure they knew what they were doing, and they were just about to w wake up the president to, you know, tell the president that there was an uh, incoming large-scale Soviet attack, when somebody realized that there was a training tape, the command centers that it was being run, and somehow the data from that training tape had gotten into the operational computers. And so, in fact, it looked like just the kind of attack that people had, uh, had trained against, because in fact it was. It was a training tape. As I understand it to this day, nobody really understands how that information got from uh, the training tape computer to the actual operational computers. But that was a case where if you think about the very short amount of time that you've got, I mean, again, you're talking about less than a half an hour. That's try to make sense of the data that's coming in, uh, getting the people together to talk about what it means, get a hold of the president, get the president briefed and all that kind of thing. There's very little time to make a decision. And that's a case where, you know, you could have imagined, uh, based on that, that the United States would have launched a very large retaliatory strike. What would be the case if senior people at the White House or in Congress questioned the mental stability of the commander in chief? Maybe he's acting very erratic. He is watching a lot of TV. He's arguing with strangers on the internet. He doesn't seem to be weighing in on important issues of the day, doesn't seem interested in reading his intelligence reports, you know, generally acting kind of nuts while in the White House. Has that ever happened before where, where there's been a discussion about hmm, maybe the president's not of sound mind? Well, in fact, uh, it did happen. Late in the Nixon administration, Nixon was depressed from the Watergate uh, hearings. He was apparently um, drinking heavily. And people in the White House, in particular, uh, Secretary of Defense Schlesinger, was concerned about his mental state. Well, no, 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 I'd rather use a nuclear bomb. That's I just want you to think big, Henry, for and told people at the Pentagon, if you get a launch order or something like that from the president, I want you to check with me before you carry it out. That was extra legal. That was not something that he was actually allowed to do. But I think there was a sense that uh, this was an extraordinary time and that it was probably justified. Uh, but, you know, it's a question of, of personalities then. How do you decide when uh, when that is justified, and how do you decide whether, if you're a, a launch officer who's well down in the chain of command, what command will you follow, the one from the president or, or somebody trying to contravene that order? What do you make of the way that Trump and Kim Jong-un are sort of duking it out on social media and, you know, with, with this sort of name-calling rhetoric? It's like insane, Right. Uh, I would say insane is a pretty good word for that. I have to say, it's, it's just incredibly disturbing that when you're talking about having tens of thousands of lives, especially in South Korea, at risk if something happens. I mean, as I think people have probably heard in the press, that if there is something that happens on the Korean Peninsula, for example, if the United States decides to try and launch a an attack, say a conventional attack, to take out bunkers or things like that, 
that North Korea has a very large number of artillery tubes that are aimed at Seoul, which is, you know, unfortunately quite close to the border between North and South Korea. And that in a very short amount of time, that could cause huge amounts of damage to uh, South Korea. And so from my point of view, having watched North Korea for a long time, I'm concerned that as as people let their personality get into this and start to see these things as personal affronts and start making, you know, drawing red lines and backing themselves into corners, what they really start to do is uh, reduce the number of options they have for moving forward. And I think that that's what I see as the real tragedy of the current situation, is I think both President Trump and Kim Jong-un have made some very strong statements that it's going to take a lot to get them to walk away from. And yet the consequences of sort of taking, you know, step by step going forward in the direction it's going is incredibly dangerous. When Kim Jong-un came out a couple days ago and basically uh, made some very strong statements, uh, one of the concerns is that what that essentially did, I think, is undercut any sort of quiet behind-the-scenes diplomacy. Because when Kim Jong-un comes out and says, you know, we can't talk with this country that's essentially declared war on us, any kind of officials under Kim Jong-un who, who are trying to carry out some sort of, uh, you know, behind-the-scenes dialogue puts them in a position of having to sort of cut those off if they're going to follow official position. And once that happens, I don't see what means you have to try and walk yourself back from this situation. I've watched North Korea for 25 years, and I've never been as worried as I am now about what may happen. David Wright, thank you very much for joining us. Very nice to be here. David Wright is the co-director of the Union of Concerned Scientists Global Security Program. Now, before we go on with the show, I just want to give people a quick update on the alleged whistleblower reality winner. She, of course, uh, is in jail right now facing charges under the Espionage Act. Uh, the government claims that she was the source of a report that was published by The Intercept, NSA top secret document that dealt with Russian cyber espionage efforts in, in the 2016 presidential election. Winner is being held without bond. And part of the reason that the judge agreed to hold her without bond is that the U.S. attorney claimed in court that the government had recorded reality winner while she was in jail, saying that she had documents, plural, and that the concern was that she may have other documents. And if she's free, she might be able to share those as well or leak those as well. And they also claim that they overheard her directing the transfer of $30,000 from her savings account to her mom's account because she wanted to have free legal counsel. Well, now the U.S. attorney is saying that she has listened to the tapes before she was just going off of the FBI's characterization of them and says that Winner doesn't say anything about documents but that it's document singular. And as for the $30,000 wire transfer, the U.S. attorney is now saying, well, Reality Winner was concerned that her bank account was going to be frozen and that she wouldn't be able to pay for a lawyer. So it seems very clear here that the FBI misled the U.S. attorney in that case to keep Reality Winner in jail without bond. This deserves more investigation and more attention. And over the ocean to the red Spanish soil came the Lincoln Brigade 
with their dreams of a victory. But they fell in the fire of Germany's bombings, and they fell because nobody would hear their sad warning. So here's a song to those who are gone with never a reason why. That was the late folk singer Phil Oakes singing A Toast to Those Who Are Gone. Uh, specifically a verse about what is now an almost never-discussed episode in American history, and that is the story of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. In 1936, young Americans began heading over to Spain to confront the rise of fascism in Europe. At the time, Spain was was viewed in the world as an early front line in the battle against fascism in Europe, and those Americans who operated under the banner of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, joined volunteers from across the globe who also came to Spain to fight against fascist forces led by General Francisco Franco. Franco was a murderous thug and an ally of Mussolini and Hitler. And eventually, Franco would become a great ally of the United States government. Now, while the story of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade is not often told or recalled in the modern era, it should be. It's the story of young Americans, many of them immigrants, laborers, workers, who saw the dangers of fascism years before the United States government got militarily involved in war against Hitler and his allies, and well before the point where the mythical history of the fight against fascism in Europe is taught in many American schools. On Tuesday, Donald Trump held a joint press conference with the Spanish prime minister. The timing of that is interesting, given that the Spanish government is at this very moment forcefully seeking to stop a referendum on independence in Catalonia. Donald Trump made clear where he stands on this issue. I really think the people of Catalonia would stay with Spain. I think it would be foolish not to. You're talking about staying with a truly great, beautiful, and very historic country. Now, it's interesting that while Trump uses his generic filler for countries he doesn't know much about, oh, it's great, historic, beautiful, the U.S. relationship with Spain for many decades was one of normalizing the dictatorship of General Franco. I doubt Trump knows much, if anything, about Franco, but I'm certain that Trump would have loved the dictator who ruled Spain until his death in 1975. You see, Franco's whole agenda was framed around making Spain great again, shielding Spain from foreign influence, preserving its conservative brand of religion, fascism masquerading as proud nationalism. There's a lot of debate and discussion today over the tactics of the groups and people that are generically referred to as Antifa. And it's, it's become a regular talking point, including of Democrats and, and some liberal pundits, to kind of equate Antifa with the so-called alt-right or with the neo-Nazis and white supremacists being more and more empowered by the Trump administration. This both-sides-are-wrong mentality has been used throughout history to forgive the crimes of right-wing fascist movements. The veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade were celebrated initially as heroes and visionaries who saw the threat of fascism early on and tried to stop it. And today, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade is seldom mentioned at all. This history is actually vital for all of us to study, particularly in this moment that we currently find ourselves in. We're joined now by James Fernandez. 
He's a professor of Spanish and Portuguese at New York University, and he is on the board of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archive. Jim, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning. Give the political context of what was happening in Europe in the mid-1930s that ultimately spurred so many young people to join the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. In the case of Spain, 1931, uh, Spain tries this experiment in democracy, which is really its first real experiment in modern democracy. But in Europe, monarchy fell. Turbulent Spain ended the rule of the Bourbons and exiled her popular King Alfonso, the unlucky 13th, becoming a republic under President Zamora. And the country chooses the worst possible moment because democracy and capitalism are being called into question all over the world. So we're in the throes of the Great Depression. It looks like liberal democracy has maybe reached the end of its course. These alternative ideologies are getting strength on all across the ideological spectrum. And in that context, fascism rises in Italy and Germany, and eventually uh, with a coup that Franco and his generals unleashed on July 18, 1936, it raises its head in, uh, in Spain. From our cameraman in the vital northeast sector of the Spanish war front comes news that is no less important than the attack on the capital. For with the world's spotlights on the fight round Madrid, we're apt to forget that Catalonia and its capital Barcelona are by no means conquered. Day after day along a hundred mile front, these men hold the lines against fierce attacks by forces of Moors, used by General Franco as his main spearhead. But the line holds, and here in the northeast is the government's main center of hope. Day after day, our cameramen face grim scenes. Day after day, they live to the tune of pinging bullets, of the throb of gunfire, of the roar of warplanes. So in the States, there were thousands and thousands of folks that were following very closely what was happening in Europe and in Spain. The horrors of World War II have totally eclipsed our memory of Spain. But in 1936, 37, 38, Spain was Syria. Spain was the place on the map where it looked like the future of the planet was being played out. And all thinking people were talking and thinking and worrying about Spain in their literature and newsreels and radio broadcasts. And there were vast communities of intensely mobilized folks that started mainly as pacifists. They were, they were against war and fascism was the organization and slogan of a lot of these folks up until 36, let's say. But once things evolved some more, they realized that the only way to put down fascism was to, in this case, to kind of put brackets around being against war and actually taking the war to the fascists in Spain. The volunteers that went is almost 3,000. We think 2,800 is our best guess now. And like I said, they came mostly from intensely mobilized communities all over the United States. A lot of them were immigrants or children of immigrants. Most of them were from large cities. They were trade unionists. They were, a lot of them were members of the Communist Party, or socialists, anarchists, but generally leftist folk who saw the menace of fascism and took the incredible step of trying to do something about it. Now, what was the posture of the United States government at the time toward these fascist elements that were starting to quite rapidly rise in Europe, with Spain being the first major front? Right. I mean, the stance was pretty much wait and see. You know, the story that we tell ourselves about the history of the United States is that we are this anti-fascist force, this force that put down fascism in the world in World War II. Well, we have guys who in December of 36, December 26, 1936, a bunch of guys walked to Chelsea Piers and got on a ship to France and eventually crossed into Spain. 
to put down fascism. A full five years before Pearl Harbor, in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade archives, we have the letters that they were writing back to their families. The clarity is unbelievable. Their clairvoyance of why they were going and what was there and what, what it was that they were fighting is, is really amazing. And they knew exactly what they were going to fight against. Why would young Americans decide to actually leave the United States and go to Spain? Hmm. Uh, like, what was so important to them about what was happening in Spain that they would risk their lives to go and fight and potentially die there? Their reasons are diverse, and it's interesting to see how a lot of them project onto Spain their own anxieties. So for a lot of the Jewish volunteers, Spain was a shot at Hitler directly. They might not have known anything about Spain. They supported the Republic because it was the thing to do. But really, Spain was a place for certain Jewish volunteers to defend their people and their lives. African-Americans, it's an amazing story. About 90 African-Americans volunteered to fight in Spain. And they, for the most part, saw fascism as an extension of Jim Crow, as an extension of institutional racism and white supremacy. And, and they say this very clearly in their letters. And in, in fact, um, Langston Hughes, who at the time was writing for the Baltimore Afro-American, one of the great black newspapers from American history, uh, he wrote, give Franco a hood and he'd be a member of the Ku Klux Klan. That's awesome. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade was largely a white population, as you point out. And it was the first actually integrated militarized unit in United States history. What, why did they choose the name Abraham Lincoln Brigade? We don't know. There's a standard explanation which doesn't satisfy me, which is basically that he was the president who presided over a nation that, that was in the midst of a civil war. Other people say that along the lines of the popular front strategy, the tendency was to try to name after national heroes. There was this attempt to claim that there's nothing incompatible between, say, communism and Americanism. Some people on the right say that it was a ruse. They were trying to trick people, that these were dirty communists who just used this name to pass as something else. But that's definitely not true. The reason I'm, I have doubts about it is because we recently found a photograph with volunteers with a banner with the name on it, which is earlier than any of the accounts that we know about. And it's being held by a bunch of Cuban volunteers who had been in New York. So we're trying to figure that out. Explain who Franco was and the ideas that he was advocating when he essentially attempted to just put a complete halt to any kind of a democratic process in Spain. Franco was astute and shape-changing, and he was around for a long time, and he rewrote himself many times. And so he was a general who had been seasoned in the Spain's colonial wars in North Africa, putting down the Moroccan plea for independence from Spain. That accounts in part for his incredible brutality. And a lot of historians talk about how uh, his army inflicted on Spaniards kinds of torture and warfare that in the past had never been used in Europe, only on colonial peoples, quote unquote. And he basically carried out a campaign of annihilation. After a bullet-studded journey across the north of war-torn Spain, our cameramen reached the white headquarters at Burgos. There they succeed in getting a camera interview with General Franco. Smiling may be at the news of his victory in San Sebastian. With his troops seemingly moving forward on all fronts, there's special significance in their leader's statement that if they win the war, he'll establish a military dictatorship. 
to last as long as is necessary to restore order. He wasn't interested. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Interested really at any point in truce and negotiation, he he realized, especially once he had Hitler and Mussolini's support, he realized that he could go for the whole enchilada and and try to basically annihilate the people that were in Spain that were contaminated with this anti-Spanish zeal for democracy. It's basically the way that he saw it. So the Republic was trying to take measures to bring Spain into modernity. Before the Republic, education was in the hands of the Church. land was largely in the hands of a small number of families the republic had the incredible task of not only trying to institute democratic institutions in the hostile climate of 1931 to 36 it also basically had to create spanish citizens because there were no modern citizens in spain in the 1930s there were subjects of a monarchy there were people who didn't see themselves as stakeholders in any kind of common republican process. And so the republic is trying to build schools, do land reform, eventually put down a coup that later gets help from Hitler and Mussolini and create a sense of belonging and stakeholding among the Spanish citizens. That's a tall order. And the US posture toward Franco at the time The official posture was one of non-intervention and in fact an embargo on the sale of arms to either side in Spain was approved by Congress which of course only favored the fascist side. I've heard it said that this is the first and only time in American history where the United States has refused to sell arms to a legally elected democratic government with which it had diplomatic relations. But no, they decided uh, Roosevelt decided and Congress to declare neutrality and non-intervention and on top of that to impose a an embargo. The American government has stressed the complete impartiality of its attitude and has publicly stated that in conformity with its well-established policy of non-interference with internal affairs in other countries, either in time of peace or in the event of civil strife, it will of course When the volunteers from the United States started to go to Spain, talk about that. Like, how did they get there? Who were the first groups of people to go, and how many went initially? So the war starts in July of thirty-six. Franco and his generals really thought that in a couple of weeks they could impose martial law, kind of reset the government. roll back some of the reforms and just they thought they were going to hit the reset button 
But it didn't turn out that way. There was incredible popular resistance, especially in the major cities, to the fascist uprising. So the thought that this might escalate into an international conflagration, I don't think was on anybody's mind. Madrid takes to the barricades as this fortnight of frantic combat drives Spain's death toll well into the third hundred thousand. The capital's stubborn defenders fortify all positions for the final climactic struggle. Everywhere is evidence of the grim resolve never to surrender. Street banners proclaim they shall not pass. Men, women, and children flaunt the determination to fight to a finish. Today they parade, tomorrow they may die. But by October of 36, the battle for Madrid is, is they're there. It looks like it's going to be a longer war than anyone thought. Hitler and Mussolini were already helping Franco. The first Americans boarded a ship right after Christmas, December 26, 36, and got there about a week later. And the typical route from here was to take a ship to Paris, a train to southern France, and then because the border was closed for most of the duration of the Spanish Civil War, most of the guys hiked across the Pyrenees at night, led by smugglers, Catalan or Basque smugglers who knew their way around the Pyrenees led into Spain. Did any of them have like, military experience or fighting experience? Very few. Some did, but most of them, no, there was very little military experience. These guys were workers, factory workers, you know, union organizers, things like that. They're not much military training. At the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archive, there's a growing collection of letters that these uh, individuals that joined the Abraham Lincoln Brigade uh, wrote during their time or as they were going or while they were there. Share some of the, the kinds of reasons that these people joined the brigade and went to Spain. What for me is one of the richest documents in all of the archive, which is a letter that James Lardner wrote to his mother. Uh, James Lardner was a Harvard-educated correspondent for the International Tribune in Paris And uh, this guy had a good job in Paris and went to write a story about Spain and fell in love with the cause. And against everyone's advice, including his friends Hemingway and everybody else, very well-connected family, he enlisted. And we have the letter that he wrote to his mom. And she receives this letter from her son that she thinks is in an office in Paris typing out stories. And and he says, Mom, I've decided to go to Spain. And, and for my own edification, I've made a list in no particular order. And then the list is like 22 or 24 items. And it's a, it's a gem because he'll say things like, uh, well, my French is pretty good, but I need to improve my Spanish. Or he says, uh, there's a girl in Paris who needs to realize that she can live without me. Uh, but then he says, because I feel that in modern times, uh, war is one of the things, unfortunately, that all of us need to prepare for, and I I intend to do that, Uh, and that fascism needs to be put down. And he says, I don't know what's going to replace it. Maybe it's communism. I'm not sure. And then he says, I'm tired of wearing a tie. It's a beautiful text because it shows the complex motivations of a single person. But he was a blue blood, uh, and there were some like him. But the vast majority, like I said before, were working class ethnics who were going to put down what they saw as a planetary menace. Uh, when they arrived, who do they report to? Like, how, how does one just go to a place where there's a, the rise of fascism and, and, and even know where to go? 
the Communist Party took care of the logistics. Here they helped get the passports and book the tickets and because they were traveling illegally. Right, their passports were stamped not valid for travel in Spain. That's how important Spain was. It was an actual rubber stamp on your on your passport. They were okay because they were taking a ship to Paris, right? And then then they they'd figure out how to get into Spain with the help of the of the Communist Party of France. And when they finally make it through France and enter Spain, how does the involvement of the brigade begin in terms of actual fighting or assisting others in the rebellion against Franco? Well, they're quickly organized into a, a battalion, eventually a few battalions. So technically, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade is a is a misnomer. There was never such a thing. Um, there was an Abraham Lincoln Battalion and a George Washington Battalion, and then a, a third battalion that was uh, Mackenzie Papineau that was uh, mixed uh, Canadian and and American. But we use uh, the brigade term to, to refer to all of them. They were organized into battalions, and with very little training, they were thrown into the first battle. It was the Battle of Harama, which is on the outskirts of Madrid, and it was a struggle to keep open the road between Madrid and Valencia, which was going to be the supply line for the Republic for most of the war, for, for, for the Mediterranean. You will never find peace with these fascists. You will never find friends such as we. So remember that valley of Haramam and the people that'll set that valley free. What was the fate of of some of the people that ended up going to Spain? Like maybe you could just uh, give some examples of kind of the experience. On the whole, it was pretty terrible because they were used as shock troops and because they were not as well equipped as they should have been. And they certainly didn't have the experience and training that they should have had. So the actual combat experience was pretty harsh and awful, especially the first battles. They were they were decimated in, in Harama. And they had morale problems because of that. But they stuck it out. And we think that of the 2,800, probably a third are in Spanish soil, died there. And then another third came back and go off the radar. We don't really have much of a beat on them. The other third are people who kind of made their experience in Spain a centerpiece of their life in one way or another. And we know an awful lot about those guys. But there's two thirds that kind of escapes us. By no means was it just people from the United States coming to join. I mean, you had people from all over the world. Maybe you can describe how Spain then became this. It was like flypaper for people who were gravitating to the anti-fascist struggle that was emerging in the world. That's right. Yeah. The International Brigades, we think, was made up of about 45,000 volunteers. So the Americans were a drop in the bucket. The most amazing statistic I've heard is that 1,000 Cubans were there. I think 3,000 Americans and 1,000 Cubans, that tiny country. I don't know what the population of Cuba was in 36, but it was it's a small country. France probably contributed the most volunteers, Germany. There were a lot of people who were already political exiles, kind of stateless people that uh, went to Spain because they they wanted to fight against fascism and they couldn't live in Italy or, or Germany. Well, and you, you also had people that would become uh, very serious literary figures. I'm thinking of... Uh, Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell, and of course Hemingway was was on the scene. What was the experience of some of those people that ended up becoming very famous uh, or already had something of a reputation versus the 
the working class uh, rank and file labor guys who went over from the United States. I know that Hemingway is a fascinating case, right? Because he he comes back and writes what is billed as the great American novel about the Spanish Civil War. And it is a great novel, but uh, it drove the veterans crazy. The volunteers emerged out of immigrant working class communities that were deeply mobilized. Hardly any of them was a loner. Hardly any of them was a professor of Spanish. Hardly any of them had a name like Robert Jordan. And these guys were Fishman and Bukowski and, and Fernandez and things like that. And so he writes this great American novel about the Spanish Civil War, and his hero is this loner, Wasp, who's there for unknown reasons and who speaks Spanish and who's just... I think eventually the veterans came to think, well, maybe his heart was in the right place, but he kind of did us a disservice by portraying, you know, the American volunteer in world literature is this guy, Robert Jordan, who doesn't really look like most of the volunteers. You've got to understand, Maria. I'm in this war to the finish. I can't have anything serious in my life. A man doing what I'm doing never knows what's going to happen. Whatever happens to you will happen to me. How were the battalions covered in the media in the United States at the time? Until the Cold War heats up, um, they were seen as anti-fascist heroes. A lot of people don't remember, but the scene in Casablanca, where they try to convince Rick to do the right thing. Because, my dear Ricky, I suspect that under that cynical shell, you're at heart a sentimentalist. Oh, laugh if you will, but I happen to be familiar with the record. Let me point out just two items. In 1935, you ran guns to Ethiopia. In 1936, you fought in Spain on the loyalist side. And got well paid for it on both occasions. The winning side would have paid you much better. Maybe. <laughs> so here's a Hollywood film from, I guess it's 1942, where having been in Spain is credentials for knowing how to do the right thing. That then starts to change, though, as World War II comes to an end and the uh, you you had volunteers that were targeted by the government uh, particularly through the lens of the House Un-American Activities Committee and the anti-communist kind of fever that was uh, was sparked in the country. Yeah, that's what's really amazing and and again the archive is so valuable because we can see that happen in time. Right? These people go from being seen as anti-fascists being on the, on the right side of history for that moment to being subversive communists that need to be surveilled and, and persecuted. And it happens in a span of years, and it happens right before your eyes, you know, if you follow the papers. I want to ask your thoughts on the debate over what is generically being called right now Antifa uh, in the United States. And, you know, part of it centers around the clashes with neo-Nazi fascist elements that are trying to defend Confederate monuments. And, of course, we have incidents like the murder of Heather Heyer, where, you know, this guy runs her over in her car, or the beating of DeAndre Harris by these, you know, neo-Nazis. But there is this trend of, you know, a responsible progressives, Democrats, that sort of view Antifa as just this uncouth group of troublemakers that are going to ruin it for the rest of us that are trying to responsibly confront the realities of a Trump-governed United States. What are your thoughts, though, about this discussion and the punching of Nazis that's become a meme and the way that Antifa is sort of equated with 
neo-Nazis, including by self-identified Democrats. In a lot of ways, it's funny to see this happening in the States because that's precisely the image that Franco and his regime eventually promoted of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, the Spanish Civil War was the result of these two brutal and excessive forces going at it. And it's best to just do everything we can to make sure that never happens again on both sides, right? So Spain has pretty much done this already, this kind of cleansing of history so that it looks like it was this moment of collective craziness that led to this bloodletting that we've happily now overcome. And that's what I see at the bottom of the rhetoric here of equating these two sides and saying, oh no, you know, they're both, they're equally, they're good guys on both sides or whatever, however you want to put it. It's a way of disarming history. Given your scholarship on Spain, I'm wondering if you sense whiffs of Franco and Donald Trump. I recently showed a different class that I teach, a, a photograph that was taken at a right-wing rally in Spain. I think it was right after Trump was elected. And there's a guy, a Spanish guy, in this big rally holding up a sign in English that says, make Spain great again. <laughs> wow. Kind of sums it up. Where is the Spain that he wants to go back to, right? And the first answer is this, the Spain of a dictatorship, right? And the second answer, a longer take, is imperial Spain, when you know, Spain ruled the world. What, what was sort of Franco's argument with the people about why what he was doing was right? Like, what was his sort of promise to Spain as he sought to stop any kind of a democratic movement in Spain and take power himself? Like, what was the core argument he was making to average Spaniards? The core argument was that Spain had been infected with this foreign ideology, part of Spain, the part that sided with the Republic, that there was an anti-Spain living within Spain. People had been infected with the virus of disorder and communism and, and all of that. And he promised a return to law and order and a return to this Spanish essence. Which means what? Oh, inequality, Catholicism, pride in a kind of invented imperial past. Uh, law and order. It sounds so familiar. <laughs> uh, and so now I can't quite put my finger on it, but it sounds so familiar to me. Right. I don't, I don't. For this generation of young people in the United States, what do you think is the historical lesson to take away from the history of the Abraham Lincoln brigades? It can't be a lesson in what to do when, because people really have to reach that decision on their own. But here's a historical example um, a shining historical example, right, of of a world kind of adrift and some people who realize that some lines have been crossed and actually, okay, it's time now to abandon pacifism and to do something else. When do you cross that line? That's the thing. Nobody can be sure it's time. And that's the scary thing. That's the terrifying thing, really, of living in times like these, you know. There's a t-shirt you see once in a while. It says, is it fascism yet? It's not like fascism is going to arrive on a steed, we're going to drift into it. Who are going to be the people that are going to say, you know what, um, we've drifted too far and normal tactics and normal institutions might not be able to get us out of this. When does that happen? I mean, that's the question that people have to ask themselves. Professor James Fernandez, thank you very much for joining us on Intercepted. Thank you. It's awesome. 
James Fernandez is a professor of Spanish and Portuguese at NYU, and he's on the board of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archive. You can check out that archive by Googling Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archive. About two years ago, in October of 2015, there was a terrorist attack at the main bus station in Beersheba in southern Israel. A gunman killed a soldier and injured 10 civilians. Of course, violent incidents like this aren't uncommon in Israel. That year alone, there were a number of similar attacks. But there was one unusual thing about this one. In the midst of the chaos, a security guard shot a man that he believed was one of the attackers in the bus terminal. And after the man was shot and on the ground bleeding out, a crowd formed around him and started beating him repeatedly, shouting, cursing him, throwing a chair on his head. Meanwhile, the actual gunman was at the other end of the station. It turned out that this man who was beaten for 20 minutes as he lay bleeding on the floor was innocent. He was an Eritrean immigrant by the name of Haptum Zahum, and he died after being shot and gang-beaten by security forces and Israeli civilians alike. This is the subject of a haunting documentary called Death in the Terminal. It has just been released in the U.S., and you can stream the whole movie for free at Topic.com. That's a new media platform just launched by First Look Media. This film, Death in the Terminal, combines the raw surveillance footage and eyewitness interviews with people who you actually see also in the footage in an effort to reconstruct what happened that day in the Beersheba bus terminal. Death in the Terminal is directed by the Israeli filmmakers Tali Shemesh and Asaf Sudri. Tali and Asaf, welcome to Intercepted. Hi. Hi, thank you. Tali, let's begin with you. Explain how you first heard about this incident that occurred in 2015. I heard about it, uh, actually, like everyone else here in Israel. We were at home. It was 7 o'clock in the evening. The children were after, you know, bath, uh, were watching TV and, uh, you know, putting on the pajamas and... uh, and then there were breaking news on the television. And suddenly, pictures started coming from Beersheba bus terminal. And the news were saying there was a terror attack. And we were at home with the children. And we said, wow, what's going on here? And actually, it happened live. So we saw the whole thing live. And we started seeing pictures of the terrorists, the assumed terrorists, that being held inside the bus terminal. And people started sending clips from their iPhones, from the cellular phones, that the crowd is beating one of the terrorists. And they started broadcasting those this footage. And I was at home with the children, and I was sh- I was shocked. I, I started taking out the children, and I called Asaf. I told him. What's going on here? Look. And we understood, like everyone else, you know, it was still going on, the terror attack. Inside there were shootings, but uh, reporters were standing outside the terminal and broadcasting from outside and saying there was two terrorists inside, maybe three, and we hear uh, gunshots. And here we get this footage from the inside and they catch one of the terrorists and they started showing this terrible footage 
of beating, you know, beating a man in the ground. 22 minutes. He's lying there. For, for people who haven't seen this film yet, explain to people what happens during those 22 minutes. Like, basically, walk us through what happened that day. Well, the moment you, you hear the shots, it's echoing in a really cruel way. And immediately you see a stream of people shouting and running all directions. And seconds after the, uh, the first gunshots, you see the security guard coming into the frame and uh, a shooting, a black guy. He's, uh, the black guy is coming, the Eritrean citizen is coming. Uh, he's running inside. away. He's running away from outside, inside, because he doesn't know where the shot's coming from. He's thinking it's outside. So he's running inside uh, the bus terminal. And like few feet away, he's right, after he's in, inside the bus terminal, he's being shot. He's being shot by the security guard of the bus terminal. And it's it's taking seconds, so you don't actually digest what you're seeing. So, do we know why the security guard believed that Haftum Zaham was the terrorist? Well, I think this is you know uh, part of the experience we wanted the viewers to go through. At first, you know, no orientation. Really, the information really coming fast. Your eyes are busy, you know, watching people running. And suddenly you see this action, you know, of someone taking out a gun and, you don't, and you're not sure. He is the terrorist? Did he do something? Did he pull out a gun? You're not sure. And then when you're watching it again, you see there's nothing. It's just running out inside. And he's the security guard watching him, seeing him, and immediately taking out the gun and shooting him. It was an, an instinct, I think. He just, you know, it was like two seconds and he just shot him. He didn't have time to, to, to even... But there were a lot of people running. Yeah, but he... Yeah, and he exactly, shot him. And he shot him. And so he's shot by the security guard. He's on the ground and then the... And then immediately you see a, 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 a few more guys with uh, rifles coming in and pointing at him. From these seconds on, he is the terrorist. And you have to remember there's more shots being shot at uh, simultaneously because the real terrorist is, not, is, there. is not there. He's uh, uh, near, of feet near the toilet, there, near the yeah. restroom. The story is immediately in the people's head. There is two terrorists. We caught one. We neutralized one. And there is the second one. Now, you, you interviewed several people who were part of the uh, incident that day, and, and one interesting character in your film is this young man who actually intervenes to try to stop people from attacking someone that he also believes is a terrorist. So he it's not that he was saying, hey, you have the wrong man here. Talk about who that young man is and what his perspective was that day and why he tried to stop other people from attacking this Eritrean man as he lay bleeding on the ground? Well, uh, Moshe Kohavi, this guy served in really special forces. He's really like a, a hardcore military uh, a soldier. And uh, he's coming from a religious family. 
and a special kind of family, uh, really into contributing to community, really into uh, socialism and living in a commune. He had this education uh, from really being from a uh, young boy as an idealist, actually. You see, his action is, is, is also uh, this one is an instinct, one optional way to take, uh, you know, action. Describe what he did uh, when the beating of this Eritrean man begins. Well, actually trying to stop it. Uh, you know, he was trying to stop people, you know, and people were furious. You know, you're betraying us. You're protecting, you know, you're protecting the, 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 the killer. And you have to be really strong to stand against the crowd. And he's he's risking, he's risking his life. He could be outside. He's risking his Being life. Hurt. By protecting Habtum. could be Ooh. hurt. Yeah. Actually, it takes a beating. And, and, you know, people pushing him. And Moshe is shouting back, you're savages. You're killing your soul. You have to stop, you know, surrealistic things. Yeah, yeah, I, I found that also kind of a startling reality of how someone would react in that situation where you have this guy telling all of the other people that by participating in this, you're killing a part of your own morality, soul. a part of your own soul. Yeah. Um, you interviewed a number of people from different perspectives, including someone who was was a participant in the attack against this Eritrean man. In fact, one of the people who actually threw the bench on top of him is one of the main characters of your film. Yeah, yeah. We we looked for all the eyewitnesses and we were, you know, at the beginning very interested in the people who were active in the beating of Habtum Zahom. Uh, and they were very hostile, you know, against media that time. So it was very hard at the beginning to convince them. But we got to this person who is the main, you know, in this, now in the trial that is going on, he's one of the main characters. He's, uh, he has three children and uh, he's a prison officer in the, in the South. And he was driving his car with another, you know, another prison officer. And he heard the shot, the shooting outside. He was driving and he saw people screaming and coming out from the bus terminal. And he stopped his car outside on the, on the road. And he ran inside. People are running out and he's running in, inside. And he's saying to himself, there's a terror attack. I'm going to help. And he gets there and it's already after Habtum is shot and Habtum is on the floor. And he, go, he gets near. And then there's another shooting and everybody's running. And Habtum is alone on the floor. And Ronen, who is a prison officer, tells himself, oh, this is the terrorist. I must neutralize him. He's moving. Nobody's here. And he's taking this bench and throwing it on him. And from there, he's starting being also very violent, violence with this guy who he thinks is, a, is the terrorist. And before we met Ronen Cohen, me and Asaf too, we had this image of those guys, you know, and he looked to us like a monster, like, who is this guy? But the minute we met him, after like 10 minutes, we understood that he's the same, just like us. <laughs> he's not a monster. He's not a terrible man. He's very nice. He's a hero. He's, he's even, I guess, much better than me because he wouldn't hide. He'd go inside, you know. He wants to save people. And then we started listening to him. 
You know, this was this was the whole point for us to understand how can Onen Cohen go inside as a hero and come out as this terrible man who is lynching this poor guy. You know, how where is this place that you become cruel? Uh, there's a place, everybody has this place, I believe. This is, you know, a film about cruelty, not about, you know, the the hero is uh, taking the right step and uh, everyone's, uh, you know, having the catharsis of the, the good prevail. No, this is about cruelty coming out of normal people, of good people, of something evil coming outside of us, of us. And this is, you know, what we emphasize here. There is no the bad guy. There is no the evil guy. It's us. We are the evil in one point. Or we could be, you know, hero in in different points. So we saw like regular people that could be our friends, that could be our relatives. And they were really acting as, as you saw it. In animalistic, you know, I, I don't know. Like a mob violence. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and this is the, the complexity, the human, you know, the human soul that could go in, in the extremes. And this is one of the extremes, you know, that we met. What uh, was the reaction in Israel when it became clear that a mob attacked this man, an Eritrean migrant, and that he had nothing to do with the terror attack that day. It was the same day, actually, you know, it happened. It was two hours after the first shooting. And it was very interesting also to see it, amazing, actually, because while everyone thought this is the terrorist, they react actually like the mob. Even even the the news um, newscast, you know, they were saying, this is the terrorist, and they were showing footage you would never see, show because they thought this is the terrorist, okay? So they were acting the same way like the mob. This is what I felt. The minute the mistake came out, they started saying lynch, lynching, lynch, started blaming, you know, the, the other day we saw Ronan Coin like an animal laughing in the television, you know, they want a shot of him in the, in the jail, you know. And the minute it started saying lynching animals, it's exactly like the people inside, and it was people were talking about it for two days, and that's it. Why? Because that time we had here the, every day we had like three terrorist attack a day, three terrorist attack a day. Uh, so people forgot about it after two days. The next the next tragedy, stabbing here, uh, running people over with the cars. You know, it was every day. Every day. And the government here told people, this is why it also happened, told people, you know, Bibi, I remember Bibi, you know, saying to us, listen, you have to protect yourself. We have three times a day terror attacks. Take out your carry knives, your carry your guns <laughs> and knife and protect yourself. I remember this. So this was the, you know, the, the, the vibe yep. here. So B.B. himself, I guess, uh, bears some responsibility. It's like um, legitimizing this kind of people taking matters into their own hands, even if they don't uh, have any evidence. It's, it's, yeah, uh, they were encouraging the people to protect themselves. But, you know, but there was a reason for that, because just try to imagine what you see now in, you know, in Europe, yeah, in... Uh, there was this terror every attack. Day, in, uh, yeah. Every day here, 
for a month. What happened uh, to the um, people who ultimately participated in the murder of Haftum Zarhum? Well, it was determined, you know, at the, at the hospital that Haftum was killed by the gunshots. Uh, the gunshots uh, really uh, destroyed the liver totally, and this is the cause of death. So uh, they're not being accused of, of being um, a murder and being accused of uh, this uh, special... Uh, like you, you want to you hurt someone severely to cause him, you know, even death. So the, the punishment on this, it's up to 20 years. It's a very... And it's for the first time in Israel, there's a, there's a trial going on... For lynching. For lynching. Yes, first time the trial is still going on it's it's going yeah, to be a the verdict. trial is going on for t- over, almost two years yes. now and uh, only in october they're starting uh, starting hearing the witnesses only in october as we um close the interview i want to ask each of you for your final thoughts and whether your personal views changed over the course of making this film from the moment uh, seeing this breaking news on TV through interviewing everyone involved and getting the footage. Did your personal views change a bit of this incident? We can begin with you, Tali. My views before we started making the film was completely different. <laughs> I, my, I, I thought there's bad guys and good guys. I didn't understand the chaos. I didn't understand the... The lack of orientation, the panic. I saw the attackers as animals. I didn't think even that I can be in their position. And after we started talking to people, seeing the footage, I understood that there's no me and Donem Cohen. We are the same. It started with the question, why? Why to be so cruel? Why? It was like, okay, you know, it was like, this is our bad people. And I ended up saying, I, I hope if I would be in this place, in this terror attack someday, I I hope I won't, I, I, I will help people. I hope I will be like Moshe Kohavi. But I think I would run and pray, uh, run for my life and pray. But... Uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I will be a hero. And at the beginning, I thought I would, you know, I would never do this. I would never be the person. I would never. But it's so complicated. Yes. And I wish I would be a hero like Moshe Kochav. This is really what I want to be. <laughs> and Asaf, same question to you. I think I'm more shocked by violence. Just, you know, this, the violent actions got really deep inside my soul and uh, really deep uh, fear of violence right now that uh, wasn't there before. And um, I hope it's, I don't know, it's going to stay that way. I'm not going to join any tribal acts no. in the future. Well, it's an incredibly powerful film that you've made, and um, I want to thank you guys for being with us. Asaf Sudri and Tali Shemesh, thank you for joining us on Intercepted. Thank you. Thank Thank you you. so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks.
Tali Shemesh and Asaf Sudri are co-directors of Death in the Terminal. You can watch their film right now for free on Topic.com. And that does it for this week's show. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack DeZadoro, and our executive producer is Tal Malad. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Elise Swain is our production assistant and graphic designer. Anthony Atamanik is our Trump whisperer. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Don't forget to check out our new Facebook group. Uh, Just search for Intercepted Listeners. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Intercepted. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.